there are many voices today urging us to reimagine the church's purpose and mission. And this makes sense if the church is merely man's invention. But if the church belongs to Jesus, that he gets to set the agenda, and we should want to know what he says. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered resources over at our website, Radical.net. Well, in this message, David Platt considers the institution and confession of the church based on the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 16. The one who bought the church with his own blood has given us the privilege of knowing him and proclaiming his gospel. And we can be confident because Christ has told us that not even death would stop him from building his church. Here's David with a sermon titled, The Institution and Confession of the Church, from Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 28. If you have his word, and I hope you do, I invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and let me invite you to pull out those notes you received and worship guide when you came in. Today we resume our journey through Jesus' life in the book of Matthew. In light of Easter, we've taken the last two weeks to jump ahead to Jesus' death and resurrection. Now we're going to go back to where we left off. Matthew 15, picking up in Matthew chapter 16. So let me remind you kind of where we were when we were studying Matthew chapter 15. This was the night that we commissioned out Christ Fellowship Church, about 40 members from the church of Brook Hills who left from among us, sent out to go and plant this church in the south side part of our city. Just so you know, they, the following Sunday, covenanted together as a church led by a pastor who we sent out, Bart Box. And then the next week, which was Easter, they had their first official worship gathering for the public, and they were packed out and had four or five baptisms. So we praise God for this. A new church has begun. And on a side note, I was preaching this last week at a conference where I got to see and talk with all of the church planners that we have sent out in North America. So... Got to spend time with Andrew, who is in Seattle now, John, who's in Kansas City, Josh in New York City, Ben, who is close by here in East Lake, and then, of course, Bart in Homewood Southside. And all of these brothers and their families are doing well. Andrew and Kim in Seattle are now meeting with a group of around 50 people every week in Hallows Church, seeing people join the church and come to Christ. John and Amy in Kansas City have officially begun Cross Fellowship Church. They now have three community groups. And I had the opportunity to meet two other elders that John brought with him to this conference. And they are together making disciples in some really, really encouraging ways. Josh and Tracy, right after they got to New York, found out that Tracy was pregnant. So they are already multiplying in New York City, for which we praise God. In all seriousness, it looks like uh, the Lord has opened up a door for us to partner together with another local church there in New York City and planting alongside them, which Josh is really, really, really excited about. So things are going well there. Ben and the East Lake crew down the street here are doing well. Ministry in East Lake Gate City is not easy. As many of you know who are continuing to be involved there, 
It's not always easy, but the Lord is faithful and he is providing spiritual fruit in one of the toughest places in our city. And then you heard me share about Bart. So praise God for the fruit of your life, this faith family and others around the city and in North America. By God's grace, we're actually like doing this, making disciples, multiplying churches. And so tonight we come to this text, not by coincidence, that is actually the institution of the church. The first time we see the church mentioned in all of the New Testament. In fact, it's only one of two passages in all the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we see the church mentioned. It's one of the most important chapters, really, in all the book of Matthew, Thematically, one writer said it is the central or critical chapter in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. It is the high point in Jesus' teaching and the disciples' growth in spiritual understanding. So what I want to do is I want us to read this chapter section by section. And we're going to walk through it. And as we do, I want us to consider the huge, ampl- uh, uh, huge ramifications of this chapter for our understanding of who we are in this room as the church at Brook Hills and what we do as the church at Brook Hills. Now, even as I say that, I know that there are some of you who may be visiting with us, guests from another church, or, or some of you may be here and, and you're not a follower of Jesus. And even as we talk about the church tonight, I pray God might open your eyes and your heart for the first time to see who Christ is and that you might, you might become a part of the church even, even tonight. So let's pick up in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. Matthew writes, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, him being Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray. Father, as your church, we know that in this room over the next few moments, we need your spirit to illumine our minds and to open our hearts and our eyes to see and to understand your word. We praise you for this supernatural thing we get to do when we open your word together as your church to hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak to us clearly. That you would grant grace to me and that my words would be an accurate reflection of your word. And that you would 
sink your word into our hearts, particularly for what it means for us to be the church. And at the same time, Father, we pray for even those, maybe many in our midst tonight who who are not a part of your church, who do not know Christ as Savior and Lord. We pray that in the next few moments, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open eyes and open hearts and that you would do a work in people's lives in the next few moments that would literally change their lives for all of eternity. So with with this, we pray with great anticipation for your spirit to bless our time and your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's, let's think about the setting here. In chapter 15, if you remember, if you were here, if you weren't here, just kind of a recap. What happened is at the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus was confronted by some Pharisees and some scribes who were asking him some different questions. And then after addressing those questions, he moved on into predominantly Gentile territory, almost exclusively Gentile territory. He healed a Canaanite woman and then some other people. And then he fed over 4,000 Gentiles with seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. And at the end of chapter 15, you look at the last verse, verse 39, after sending away those crowds, he got into the boat with his disciples and he went to the region of Magadan. Now Magadan geographically was on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was a more Jewish area. So he has now moved from eastern shore of the Jewish Gal- the, the Sea of Galilee, which is Gentile area, to a more Jewish area. And as soon as he gets into this Jewish area, he is confronted by a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, the basic leaders in Jewish religious life, a part of the Sanhedrin, who were made up basically the Jewish ruling council. Now I put here in your notes... The characters in Matthew 16, in two groups I want you to see, the Pharisees and Sadducees on the one hand, and the disciples on the other. Let's think about them side by side. First, you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who represented the rulers of Jewish life. And they'd likely been sent by the Sanhedrin as an official delegation to confront and question Jesus about what he was doing, what he was teaching. Now, these two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, were very different from each other, oftentimes opposed to each other had different beliefs, different practices. I tried to give you a quick overview there in your notes of these two groups. On one hand, you had the Pharisees, who we've talked about before in the book of Matthew, observed strict obedience to the law of God and the traditions that they had set up. If you remember, when we looked at Matthew chapter 15, we talked about how they had actually taken the traditions of men that they taught and elevated them to the level of the authority of God's word, even to the point where their traditions were trumping God's word. And they were strict and their obedience to the law of God, the traditions of man, thinking that in doing these things, they could earn the favor of God. And working hard in these ways, following these rules, they could earn righteousness before God. So the Pharisees were marked by self-righteousness, asserting themselves in the face of God. They were classic legalists, working to do good, be good, in the process, earn God's favor through their actions. They were marked by self-righteousness. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were a bit different. They were more marked by self-indulgence, pleasing themselves apart from God. The Sadducees made up the predominantly wealthy class of Jewish people. They were smaller, and they had much means. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, so basically not, didn't believe in life after death, and so as a result, 
They, lived, they believed, hey, this world is all there is, so let's live it up. And they had the means to do so. They made money off temple concessions and money changing and ritual sacrifices. And they used that money to indulge themselves in this world. So you've got two groups of people together here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, marked by self-righteousness and self-indulgence. And you pause here and you realize in these two groups we, we see a reflection of tendencies in every single one of our hearts. We, we are all prone. Some of us prone to one more than the other, but in some ways toward self-righteousness, toward thinking, okay, if I do good things, if I'm a good person, if I check these boxes off, then I will have more favor before God. We've talked about before how there's a little legalist hiding in any one of us. At the same time, many of us are prone to self-indulgence. Instead of trying to keep the rules, we delight in breaking the rules and living it up in the world with all the stuff that surrounds us. This is particularly pertinent in the culture in which we live. And so you see these tendencies in, both, in, in our hearts that align with both of these groups. And the point of the story is to show that whether it's self-righteousness or self-indulgence, both of these groups are opposed to Jesus. Both of these groups miss the point of who Jesus is. Beware self-righteousness and self-indulgence both prohibit us from seeing Jesus for who he is. Both lead us to work against Jesus. Now, these groups, though different, had come together here. Even though they were often at odds with each other, even though sometimes they were each other's antagonists in Jewish religious life and leadership, here they stand together. A common opponent always transforms enemies into friends. So they come to Jesus wanting him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, we've seen this before back in Matthew chapter 12, and we see a similar response from Jesus. Show us some kind of sign to testify to who you are, that you're the Messiah, as if they had not seen enough signs in Jesus up to this point. So I love what Jesus does. He looks back at them, and he starts talking to them about the weather. And it's evening. You say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to, appearance, to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Jesus tells these leaders that they were focused on temporal matters, constantly paying attention to changes in the weather and predicting what would happen as a result of this or that sign in the sky. Yet all the while, they were blind to eternal realities, focused on the temporal, blind to the eternal. Amidst their supposed knowledge of God and all of his ways, they were missing the signs of God with them right in front of them in the promised Christ, the Messiah. They could pay attention to changing weather conditions, but they were missing epic-making changes in the history of redemption happening right in front of them. Could they not see that God had broken into the world as a man coming to heal the sick and to raise the dead, to cast out demons, to calm storms, to bring salvation. Jesus' coming was evidence of God's victory over sin and suffering over demons and death. Jesus was giving them a foretaste of the kingdom to come, a kingdom that will last forever and never be destroyed. All of this right in front of their eyes. And instead, they're talking about the weather. Ignoring the signs of far more important realities right in front of them. So Jesus looks at them and says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah, which we saw back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. It's a reference to Jesus' resurrection. Just as Jonah was three days in a fish and came out, Jesus would be three days in a grave and come out. But even that would not be enough for these religious leaders. 
Even Jesus' victory over the death, over death, over the grave, coming out. We saw last week in Matthew chapter 28, even that was not enough to convince them. It's similar to a conversation I had with an unbeliever just this last week. And as we were talking about the gospel, there were so many different questions this person had. And, and it kept coming back, it kept coming back to saying, if I could just see proof that God exists and that Jesus is real. And I, I looked at him and I said, well, look around the world. Everything in creation shows us. The design of creation points us to a designer. Look in your own heart. The very fact that you have knowledge of right and wrong and good and evil does not come from naturalistic processes. This is only possible from a moral law in our heart. It's only possible from a moral law giver. And then on top of that, God himself has come to us in the person of Jesus. We talked about different miracles and then had the conversation that we had last week in our worship gathering about the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus rising from the dead. I said, if all of that is true, then isn't it going to be a little bit foolish for you maybe to stand, one, stand before God one day and say to him, if you could have just given me some evidence that you were here. And it's a picture of the fact that even even beneath intellectual questions, in our hearts, there is a moral objection to the gospel and a rebellion against God, which is all over these Pharisees and Sadducees, the same Jewish religious leaders who in Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus rose from the grave, immediately worked to cover that up. Would not be enough. So be careful what self-indulgence and self-righteousness will do to the core of your heart to lead you to oppose Jesus. So that's one group of characters here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which leads to a contrast with the disciples. Now, when we see the disciples here in Matthew chapter 16, we realize that they are a bit slow. Jesus looks at them and they're talking, we brought no bread. Verse 8, oh, you of little faith. And you look at his questions in verses 9 through 11. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember this? Do you not remember that? How is it that you fail to understand? When I read about the disciples here, I am, I am quite honestly tempted to get a bit frustrated with them. Just kind of roll your eyes. Come on, guys. You would think they'd get it, right? In light of all that Jesus is saying and doing right in front of them. But when my frustration begins to rise toward the disciples, I'm humble when I begin to see a mirror reflection of my own heart in them. I'm humble to think of how many times the Lord, in His mercy, has taught me the same truth, the same lesson, over and over and over and over again. He has shown His faithfulness to me. In everything, God has always been faithful to me. And yet I find myself at points doubting, questioning, wondering about his faithfulness. Do you? And that's where I just, I praise God for his mercy toward us. His patience with us. His faithfulness to his disciples and his faithfulness to me and his faithfulness to you when we are faithless. Which is exactly what we see next. In the verses that follow this dialogue with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we see Peter confessing Christ. And we're about to learn some major implications about what it means to be his disciples, what it means to be a part of the church. Let me give you a little preview of 
what it means to be a disciple that we're going to see in the rest of this chapter. Disciples of Jesus are not marked by self-righteousness or self-indulgence. Disciples of Jesus are marked by self-denial, crucifying themselves for the glory of God. We're going to see in just a moment Jesus' famous words that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The lesson that these disciples were about to learn even more on this day was that in following Jesus, they would leave behind temporal pursuits. Quite literally, Jesus would tell them they would lose their lives in this world. In the process of losing their lives in this world, leaving behind temporal pursuits, they would live for eternal pleasure. And losing their lives, they would find their lives. Oh, you think about this, the wonder of this, particularly in contrast to the ways of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You live your life indulging yourself or trying to earn the favor of God by following all the rules, that is a sure recipe for losing your life, wasting your life away in this world. On the other hand, if you want to know the favor of God and you want to experience the eternal, not just talking temporal, but eternal pleasure of God, then deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple, and this is what it means to be a part of the church according to Matthew chapter 16, which leads us then to verse, verses 13 through 20. I want us to see the very first time that the word church is mentioned in the New Testament and it comes from the mouth of Jesus. Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, you may circle it there in verse 18. Circle that word, church. First time we see it mentioned in the New Testament. It's the word ecclesia, which means either assembly or called out one. So this is basically... The church is the assembly of Christ's followers, the assembly of called out ones. So who are those called out ones? Who is in that assembly? And based on these verses and the verses that follow, I've, I've given you in your notes three characteristics of the people, the called out ones who comprise the church. So let's take them one by one. First, the church is the community of people who know Jesus intimately. Church is comprised of people. It's a community of people who know Jesus intimately. Now, the contrast in this text is clear, not just between the disciples and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but the disciples and just about everybody else. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples give back varied responses that people had posited about Jesus. Some say you're John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, basically one of those guys raised from the dead, or one of those prophets or uh, like one of those prophets, like John the Baptist, like Elijah, a new prophet on the scene who's like these guys in the past. But no one, the disciples said, no one is saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. You got a lot of people 
who are thinking Jesus is a good man, maybe even a godly man, but not God himself in the flesh. So then Jesus turns the question on them. But who do you say that I am? And that word you, in the language, is two things about it. It's emphatic. There's an emphasis on it. Who do you say that I am? And it's plural. He's asking this group of disciples, who do you say that I am? And in response, Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, steps up to the plate with what is in this instance a very good response. You are the Christ. We've talked about it in Matthew chapter 1, all the way back at the beginning of studying Matthew. That's it's the Messiah, the promised one. You are the Christ, the one who's been promised the Messiah to come, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks back at him and says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but this has been revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. So follow this. This is key. A true understanding of Christ comes not from human invention. How did Peter come to this realization when all these crowds, Pharisees and Sadducees and others, are missing the point? How is Peter coming to this realization? Because Peter's not the sharpest tack in the box. So how did Peter come to this? Jesus says, not by flesh and blood. In other words, Peter, you did not figure this out on your own. A true understanding of Christ comes not from human invention. A true understanding of Christ comes only from divine revelation. My Father has revealed this to you, Peter. So mark this down. The grace of God is the only way that anyone can behold the beauty of Christ. The grace of God. His mercy, the grace of God, is the only way that anyone can behold the beauty of Christ. Jesus says the same thing in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So we know this. We know this. In and of ourselves, we are blind. We're like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We love the darkness. We love self-righteousness, self-indulgence. That's who we are. But God, in his mercy, reached down into our hearts opened our eyes to see Jesus, to know who he is, to believe in him, to confess him as the Christ, the son of the living God. Oh, Christian, you and I are in the church only because of the mercy of God to open our eyes to Christ. And some of you tonight who are not Christians have mentioned, was praying for you earlier, you might see even tonight that God in his mercy, has brought you here to this place tonight to, to hear that for hundreds of years, for centuries, God promised to send a Messiah, the Christ, his son, to save his people from their sin. And Jesus came and he lived the life that you are unable to live, a life of perfect and total obedience to God. He died the death that you deserve to die on the cross for your sin in your place. He rose from the grave in victory over sin and death so that you, in turning from your sin and trusting in him as Savior and Lord, will be reconciled to God forever. May God open your eyes tonight by his grace to the beauty of Christ May you leave behind self-righteousness. Oh, I wish you could hear 
the testimony this morning from Craig, who was baptized earlier today. Grew up in the church, prayed the prayer, been baptized, gone through the motions. But he'd done all of this religious ritual on the outside to check off boxes before God. After his freshman year in college here in Birmingham, he realizes his sin before God. He realizes there's nothing he can do, no amount of boxes he can check off to earn the favor of God. He sees Christ. God opens his eyes for the first time to see Christ as the substitutionary sacrifice for his sins, the one who stood in his place and the one who clothes him in his righteousness. He turned from his sin of self-righteousness and trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord. And this college student with tears in his eyes this morning is baptized delivered from self-righteousness, be delivered from self-righteousness, from self-indulgence, thinking this world is all there is. Just live it up right here and get all that you can and enjoy all that you can. No, there is eternal pleasure and beauty to be found in Christ. May God open your eyes to see that Jesus is better than all the stuff of this world put together. Turn, trust in him, see him. By the mercy of God, may divine revelation change your life tonight for all of eternity. This is huge. You know, there were a lot of people in the first century who would have said they believed in Jesus, right? All these crowds believed in Jesus. Some believed he was John the Baptist come back from the dead, Elijah come back from the dead, one of the prophets, Jeremiah. And a lot of people today in our country believe in Jesus, 85% of Americans say they believe in Jesus. 85% of Americans believe Jesus was a true historical figure. And among that 85%, almost all of them, more than 9 out of 10 of them, believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, which we celebrated last week at Easter. So if I were to ask the question, do you believe in Jesus? I know with a pretty good bit of certainty that in most places where I ask that question, the answer is going to be yes. That's a given in most places. But the more important question in the first century... And the more important question in the 21st century is who exactly is the Jesus that you believe in? That question is far more important. And that's where you'll get all kinds of different answers. This is the crux of the question. Not do you believe in Jesus, but who is the Jesus that you believe in? Because follow this, who you say Jesus is will determine everything about how you follow him. Who you say Jesus is will determine everything about how you follow him. If you think Jesus is a good teacher, then you will follow him like you would a good teacher. If you think Jesus has good ideas, then you'll listen to him whenever what he says seems to correspond with what you think is a good idea for your life. If you think Jesus is a good example, then you will try to follow his example. But if you think, if you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah who came to the earth to save us from our sins, to conquer sin and death, and to reign and rule as Lord over everything in all creation, including your life, then that changes everything about how you live. Everything. People who have confessed that Jesus is the Savior, King, the promised Messiah, the reigning Lord over our lives and the nations, this is who is in the church. Church It's a community of people who know Jesus intimately. So let me ask the question. And let let this question just kind of sink into your heart and your seat. So not just the person beside you, in front of you, behind you in this room with all kinds of people, but right where you are sitting. Let me ask you, do you know Jesus intimately? 
Do you know him? I'm not asking if you prayed a prayer, done this, go to church, read the Bible. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible, intimately. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be the church. It's a community of people who know Jesus, not who are playing religious games. That's Pharisees and Sadducees. Do you know Jesus intimately? And that leads to the second characteristic here of the church. It just makes sense. The church is a community of people who know Jesus intimately and who proclaim Jesus confidently. Who proclaim Jesus confidently. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right, this one verse has caused all kinds of question and controversy in the history of the church for 2,000 or so years. So let's try to solve it tonight. Here we go. What does it mean for Jesus to say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church? So what is the rock that the church is built on? Is it Peter? Is it Jesus? Is it Peter and the other apostles together? Is it the gospel? What do you think? I won't, I won't ask you to do multiple choice, but just think. All right, if I were to ask you, what, would you, what do you think? Peter, is he the rock? Jesus, the rock? Apostles, the gospel. So you have four options there. And the answer I want to show you is the rock is out of A, B, C, and D. E, all of the above. So watch this with me. What, ma what makes this passage really challenging is we've got different metaphors in the New Testament that refer to the church as a building, foundation, rock, that kind of make this a little bit confusing. So you've got 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul writes that Jesus is the foundation of the church. Jesus is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, you've got a metaphor where Jesus is called the rock. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. So there are places in the New Testament where there's rock, foundation metaphors, particularly when it comes to the church, that are used to describe Jesus. But then, on the other hand, you look at some of these passages, these same passages, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20, you see that the apostles and the prophets are referred to as the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul describes himself as an expert builder in relationship to the church. So you've got a variety of different metaphors, use it a variety of different points in the New Testament to make a variety, to, to communicate a variety of different truths. Now that's important simply because when we come to this text, we need to remember that we need to look at it in, in light of its own context, what's going on right here, because other New Testament writers are doing different things at different points in time. So what's the point that Jesus is making here in this context? And this is where this phrase is pretty unique because Peter's name actually means rock. Now, the second time, well, so, so basically what Jesus is saying is, so you, you are Peter, i.e. you are rock, and on this rock, the only difference between those two words is one is in the original language of the New Testament, in case you're interested, one is masculine form of the word, the other is feminine form of the word. But Jesus basically says, you are Peter, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. So clearly there is some parallel here, some play on words here between Peter as rock and the rock upon which the church will be built. You say, well, what, what kind of foundation is there in Peter? Well, think about what we just read. 
by God's grace, Peter had just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately after this, Jesus makes this statement that the church he is building by his grace is upon Peter, who is confessing faith in Christ for the first time in the New Testament. So the point becomes clear. Jesus is saying, in light of Peter's confession, you are an authoritative apostle. An apostle is one who is sent out to proclaim the gospel. And upon you, upon your proclamation of the gospel, I will build my church. So the rock of the church is the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Pictured here most clearly, most specifically in Peter as the first apostle to make that declaration. And the apostle upon whom the church's foundation would be built starting in Acts chapter 2. Remember that? Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the gospel and 3,000 people are saved or added to the church. Right after that, they start devoting themselves, Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching of the word. In the days to come, thousands more people are saved. The first 12 chapters of Acts show the expansion of the gospel. The church birthed and it's happening. And you look at Acts chapter 1 through 12 and the central character in all of that is Peter. Peter proclaiming the gospel. It all started, the whole church started with Peter's confession of faith in Christ. So Martin Luther said, all who agree with the confession of Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, are like Peter themselves setting a sure foundation. The reality is wherever the people of God are proclaiming the gospel of Christ, Jesus will build his church. And upon that foundation begun with Peter's confession, the church will advance. You think about it. Last week when we got together in this room for Easter with many, many people who, are, who were not saved, did not know Christ, we proclaimed the gospel of Jesus risen from the dead. And as the gospel was proclaimed in this place, Jesus was building his church, drawing people to himself. He's doing the same thing tonight, I pray, as the gospel is being proclaimed. And not just when we gather together. When you scatter this week, and you have an opportunity to look at your coworker, neighbor, have a conversation and share the gospel with them. As you proclaim the gospel of Christ, Jesus himself is building his church. That's what's happening in North Africa with these brothers and sisters that we're praying for. As they share the gospel with their language teachers, as they share the gospel with women who are part of this GOAT program, as they do that, Jesus is building his church church. And the good news is, as as the people of God proclaim the gospel of Christ, as Jesus builds his church through this, the gates of hell will not be able to stop the church. This is great. The gates of hell. This is a Jewish idiom that refers to the powers of death. This passage is making clear the powers of death. Well, first of all, the powers of death cannot stop this Messiah. He will, just as we already saw in The sign of Jonah mentioned in this chapter, he will rise from the dead in victory over the grave. So death cannot stop this Messiah, but not just him. Death cannot stop this Messiah and death will not stop his messengers. His messengers who take up their cross as we're about to read and follow Jesus, willing to lose their lives for the spread of the gospel, knowing that to live is Christ, to die is gain. And as the people of God proclaim the gospel of Christ, Jesus uh, Jesus will build his church and nothing will be able to stop it. J.C. Ryle put it this way. 
I love this. Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, and burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its affliction. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning and yet will never be consumed. Death cannot stop this Messiah and death will not stop his messengers. And we know this because, keep going, Christ gives his authority to the church. Some more debate and discussion about these verses. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, based on these verses, you got all kinds of different errant ideas and practices. you got people walking around binding this or that in this world. I bind the demon in the toaster oven that's not working. And the authority of Jesus in the name of Jesus Get the bread out. So you got all kinds of things going on in the name of the authority of Jesus binding this or that. Context, people. Remember context here. It has nothing to do with toaster ovens or anything of the like. This all revolves around proclamation of the gospel. Think about this. When Peter, the other apostles, or you and I, as the people of God, proclaim the gospel of God, we do so under whose authority? Under Jesus' authority. Jesus has authority to save sinners, and Jesus has authority to judge, to damn sinners. When you and I proclaim the gospel, his life, his death, his resurrection, and we call people to turn from their sin and trust in him, we can guarantee people that when they do that, when they turn from their sin and trust in him, put their faith in Christ for salvation, faith in Christ. Savior and Lord, when this is a reality, we can tell people, you are entering into the kingdom of heaven. You are loosed from your sin forever. And in the same way, we can and we should, ought to tell people that if they do not turn from their sin, if they do not trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, then they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They will spend eternity in hell apart from him. If this is true, then certainly we want to warn men and women around us of this. And we can know that. Not, not because it's some idea we've made up. Not because it's some idea that we as the church have contrived, but the church is built on this reality. That all who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus will be saved forever from their sin and reconciled to God. And this is huge for the church not just for understanding what it means to be a part of the church, but what we do as the church. You think about it. The next time we see church mentioned is Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus talks about church discipline, where Jesus even instructs the church to cast people out of the church if they do not show evidence of God's grace and professing faith in Christ and Savior and Lord. And the reason we do that is because the last thing we want to do in the church is give someone false confidence that they are in the kingdom of heaven when they are not. Saying, yeah, you're a part of the church, even though there's no evidence of God's grace and salvation in that person. 
The most loving thing we can do, and it's reiterated in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is cast them out of the church so they see their sin and they see I'm outside of the kingdom. I need to be brought in by the grace and mercy of God. This is why before anyone joins this church, becomes a part of this faith family, they go through an interview where they sit down with an elder or deacon. Not to get quizzed, but just to have a conversation about the gospel. Has it changed their life? Because we don't want to to acknowledge, yes, you are a part of the church if they're not a part of the church. The last thing we want to do is give false confidence to someone that you're safe for eternity when they're not. And in, the, in this way, the gospel, not, this whole picture not only affects how we understand the church, but what we do as a church. This passage just provokes us to the priority of evangelism in the church. If this is true, then we, we must go. Follow your notes. We, Christ gives us authority to the church, and we speak with the authority of Christ. We know Church at Brook Hills, so just speaking, even just to this local church, Church at Brook Hills, members here, we know the eternal destiny of people in Birmingham and people all over the world rests on their response to this gospel. And so we must go into Birmingham this week. We must go into the nations all throughout the world proclaiming the gospel, calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus, not based upon some authority in us, but based solely on the authority of Christ that's been entrusted to us as his church. This is huge. Now, unfortunately, all of this is oftentimes masked and missed, abused when it comes to this text, particularly in the way this text has been used to exalt Peter and a supposed line of succession of leaders after him. So I put the question here in your notes, is Peter the first pope? And I want to be careful here because I know that there are likely some of you who have been a part of the Catholic Church or maybe even are visiting with us and you are a part of the Catholic Church. And I want you to know my goal is not to denigrate Catholicism. At the same time, as we look at this text, bear with me for a moment and think with me about what this passage is saying and not saying. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, the Lord made Simon alone, whom he named Peter, the rock of his church. He gave him the keys of his church and instituted him shepherd of the whole flock. The office of binding and loosing, which was given to Peter, was also assigned to the College of Apostles united to its head. This pastoral office of Peter and the other apostles belongs to the church's very foundation and is continued by the bishops under the primacy of the pope. So basically, Catholicism teaches that Peter was given a special authority here that is now passed down to a succession of church leaders, specifically bishops, under the primacy of the pope. The Pope who can speak with authority that is equal to the Bible when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the seat. The Pope elevated to a level that this text is not pointing us to. Without question, this text is pointing to uniqueness and Peter's initial confession of faith in Christ. And as we've talked about, Peter's instrumental role in the foundation of the church from Acts 2 onward. Clearly, at the same time, this text is not about a supreme pope who will build the church. It is about a sovereign savior who is building his church. I will build my church, Jesus says. Jesus is the only architect of the church. And anything Peter is doing here is totally based on Jesus' authority as revealed to him by God's grace. Jesus alone is preeminent in this text. And his word alone is supreme, above all others' word. 
This text is not about a necessary pope in a line of succession. It's about a non-negotiable declaration. A pope is not primary in the church. A proclamation is primary in the church. Wherever the gospel of Christ is proclaimed, there the church will be built, and the gates of hell will not prevail against that. This text is not about an infallible pope who can speak new revelation from God. It's about an invisible, invincible mission of people who are speaking old revelation, revelation that's been around for 2,000 years, that Jesus has lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserve to die, risen from the grave and conquered the enemy we could not conquer, and all who turn from their sin and trust in him will be saved forever from their sin. Just preach that invincible mission. The gates of hell will not be able to stop the advancement of the church. So the church is the community of people who know Jesus intimately, and proclaim Jesus confidently, leading to the last characteristic. Finally, the church in Matthew 16 is a community of people who obey Jesus sacrificially. They obey Jesus sacrificially. We obey Jesus sacrificially. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Pause for a second here. See that Jesus would suffer necessarily. This is Detailed prediction of Jesus' sufferings, his death, and his resurrection. And verse 21 says it must happen. It will happen. And just when we thought Peter was getting it, he steps up and rebukes Jesus. Clearly, Peter, not infallible. He goes from rock to stumbling block in a matter of minutes. Stumbling block is a literal translation of that word hindrance there in verse 23. Get behind me, Satan. Sounds like strong language. Until you remember, back in Matthew chapter 4, remember when we studied Jesus' temptations, the devil in the desert with Jesus? The devil tempted Jesus to assert his rule and his authority apart from the path of suffering and obedience to death that was laid before him. That was a temptation in Matthew chapter 4, and it comes back right here through the disciple who's closest to Jesus. Jesus knows that he must go, that he will go, the question then comes, who will follow him? Verse 40, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus would suffer necessarily, and his disciples, including us, now suffer willingly. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Verse 24 starts with, if anyone would come after me. This is for 
all Christians. This is not a call to super Christians here. This is a basic call to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a part of the church. Follow this progression here. Die to yourself. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Put aside self-righteousness. Put aside self-indulgence. Put aside your sin and yourself, your desires, your ambitions, your thoughts, your plans, your dreams, your possessions. Die to yourself. Take up your cross. As soon as they heard that language, those disciples would immediately picture images of crucifixion. To see a man carrying a cross, anybody carrying a cross, is a dead man walking. To follow Jesus is to lose your life as you once knew it. Dead man walking. Your life as you knew it is over. Die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Take up your cross and follow me. <laughs> Same words that we saw in Jesus' initial invitation to his disciples in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Follow me. Pursue me. Walk in my footsteps according to my word. Adhering to my ways. Dependent on my power. Living for my praise. Same kind of thing we hear echoed later in Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Follow Jesus. As you die to yourself, take up your cross and follow him. You will find life. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Oh, the great reversal. Live for yourself. Live for yourself in this world. And you will die. Guaranteed. Don't be fooled. Live for yourself and you will die. Die to yourself and you will live. Die to yourself and you will live. Find life in Christ. And as you live, eagerly expect the King to come. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels and the glory of His Father. He's coming. He's coming. When's He coming? Any moment. This last verse in Matthew 16 has also caused a good bit of debate. We don't have time for in-depth exploration of it tonight. But suffice to say, when it says, when Jesus says, some standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. The way the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is talked about by Jesus in Matthew and in the New Testament, we see that, that it can clearly refer to the spread of the gospel in the early church to the power of the Son of Man. Some of these men, after seeing Jesus' death and resurrection, would see the manifestation of Christ's kingly reign expanding throughout the, the Roman Empire, ushering hosts of people into his kingdom. And so the disciples are to go, eagerly expecting the king to come and by God's grace, looking forward to the day where they will eternally experience the kingdom to come. Oh, are you ready for that? So, Leave your notes out for a minute and just, just look at it. Let me ask you, even if, if, if you are not a Christian, let me ask you these questions. As if it was the first time, or even as followers of Christ. Have you died to yourself? Are you, Christian, dying to yourself? Are you taking up your cross daily? He says in Luke 9, 23 and 24. Are you following Jesus 
Is your life consumed in him? Are you eagerly expecting his coming? Live this week. Are you living this week with an eager expectation of his coming? Knowing that one day soon we will eternally experience his kingdom to come. And that even now in the city of Birmingham this week and to the ends of the earth, we have the privilege of, of being a part of the advancement of the gospel and the proclamation of his kingdom to the ends of the earth. This is what it means to be a disciple. This is what it means to be in the church. Well, thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. If you would like to download today's sermon or even the free discussion questions that accompany every sermon, you can do all that and more over at Radical.net. And of course, while you're there, you can find similar sermons on today's topics such as membership and community, the church's mission for the person and identity of Christ. Well, thanks again for joining us on today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. Until next time, join us at Radical.net.